to Season 3 of Histo Help, the podcast series with tips, tricks, and solutions to the common and not-so-common problems in the lab. In this season, we're going to expand on your tech knowledge, talk about a polar bear, and figure out some interesting training ideas for heart tissue. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Welcome to Part 2 of AI in the Lab. In this episode, Dave and Adam are going to break down more about how artificial intelligence and a digital solution are impacted by multiplexing, and how multiplexing is impacted by an artificial intelligence or digital solution. Dave and Adam are also going to talk a little bit more about the challenges labs face in both the clinical and research environments when implementing an artificial intelligence solution. How is AI and image analysis tackling the new... uh wave of multiplexing that we're seeing, the the resurgence of um, multiplex chromogens as well as multiplex fluorescence. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting in, in image analysis. Um, I think the the multiplexing is probably more complicated on the, the wet lab side of things and getting it right and sort of validating yeah. it there. Um, for for us in, in the image analysis side of things, if you have a, a multiplex fluorescent image, um, it really doesn't matter to us whether it's a single channel, it could be DAPI and FITSI, um, or it could be DAPI and, and 50 other channels. And because yeah. they're already separated sort of in that fluorescent space or in that IMC space, um, it's really just another layer for us. So um, the the complexity of it really is, is setting up that assay and, and validating you know each of those markers, each of those antibodies that are then building that, that multiplex uh, panel. I mean, on the on the bright field side of things, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated for for image analysis because with color deconvolution, you're trying to separate all the colors on the slide and, and sort of isolate those, um, especially when you have co-localization of the markers. Um, and so, again, it kind of goes back to to the the validation of the assay in the first place in in setting it up in the labs, making sure you're uh, your antibodies are specific and then you know selecting uh, chromogens that you're going to be able to separate um, we unfortunately will we'll get uh, and this probably actually goes back to your sort of utilizing all your resources early on but we'll get um, this this fiveplex chromogenic panel that clearly someone spent a lot of time putting this together and validating it but then for chromogen selections they have it's like purple blue teal uh, on <laughs> yeah. you know on a hematoxylin stained counter stain and yeah um, to the eye, like it looks really nice and everything's sort of matching and they're, you know, in the same family and for, for a poster, it probably looks great. Uh, but for <laughs> image analysis, uh, separating those colors is, is really challenging because they all have blue uh, somewhere in there. And so um, it really becomes a challenge to separate that, those out. So again, thinking through uh, early in the game, you know, how those colors are going to relate to one another, uh, ultimately just to separate those out. Um, thinking about the color wheel and sort of looking at different quadrants of it uh, when you're yeah. selecting your chromogens is, is really critical. Um, and so as you're, you're, you're bringing image analysis into um, the assay earlier and earlier, uh, it's gonna make it easy for you downstream as well because now you know that these colors are gonna separate. Uh, you know that the, the intensity of the staining is such that you can get that separation. Um, yeah. And so, so bringing that in early as early as possible uh, it's going to give you the best results as opposed to, like I said, that sort of this finalized uh, five plex assay that's been, you know, stained for a hundred slides and you can't go back and restain it. 
um, it's, it's one of the hardest support calls for me to, to say there's, there's not much we can do here because yeah. it's blue. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, pain, it pains me to say it. Um, but yeah, so the earlier you can, um, you know, start thinking about image analysis and pulling it in as you're building those assays, uh, the better the data is going to be downstream. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of what drove the, the multiplexing as far as the chrome engines go were the current environment within the diagnostic space where pathologists would have a bright field microscope on their desk and they were used to going from the HNA bright field image directly to the, the chromogens. So historically it's been things like TAB, the brown chromogen and uh, AEC. And now, like you said, we have this revolution now where we're getting these purple and yellow and teal and green which is great uh, if you're going to be reading it by eye and you're not concerned about measuring co-localization um, because when you do have multiple chromogens that are overlapped it becomes almost impossible to to tease out the the different markers that are uh, co-expressing and we know that uh, from uh, various uh, user experience that uh, DAB has this umbrella effect where it can mask uh, other markers as well. And so it can prevent the binding of uh, other antibodies to that particular site. And so you can you can get this this hindrance, uh, steric hindrance that, that happens just because these large chromogen molecules inhibiting the binding of future uh, antibodies. And that's actually being confirmed using uh, spectral and mixing. So Akoya has their uh, vector Polaris and allows you to do spectral libraries and do some mixing. And you can actually see uh, what look to be vacuoles or holes where you would expect to see co-localization, but because the antibody wasn't able to bind, it leaves this, this empty space uh, where there should be some, some positive staining. And so I think uh, my lab is, as well as many other labs that are involved in multiplex uh, staining have gone to fluorescence approaches for that reason. And it really allows you to uh, uh, turn off channels and turn them back on again. So you can really clearly see those, those overlapping signals. And the software is, is built to, to do the quantitation of, of each of the, the channels and also get the phenotypes where you can find the, the overlapping of, of those signals. And the other change that, that's happened, this, this revolution, is that now that we're in digital pathology, we can actually scan all these fluorescent images and present them directly to the pathologist through a, a network, through a, a server, and they can open it up on their desktop along with their bright field HNA and do the side-by-side -side comparison with the fluorescence and the HNA. And especially now during the uh, pandemic where people have been working from home, uh, maybe they don't have access to, to a microscope uh, and, and many don't have access to a fluorescent microscope as well. And so to be able to just send them the, the whole slide scans of the digital images with the HNAs allows a more efficient way to uh, process those images and then feed that information into a report or, or do further image analysis on those samples. So I think we do have a uh, somewhat of a, a culture shift now, uh, kind of a revolution where we're getting more acceptive of digital pathology and and be able to uh, diagnose cases on the East Coast and and, and have uh, 
um, a secondary review or peer review on, with somebody on the, the West Coast through the digital pathology and they can have a discussion around uh, the findings. And, and if it's a very difficult uh, test as well, then you could have uh, that consultant provide maybe some additional feedback on, on what's being shown there. And for your, for your experience, Adam, with working with your clients, uh, have you seen that shift to, to more fluorescence or do you see it kind of like evenly divided between bright field and, and fluorescence? What, what's your experience? Yeah, we, we still see a pretty strong mix of it. I think um, okay. initially um, the, the fluorescence scanners were, were pretty low throughput. Um, yeah. I think the Aperio FL was one of the first ones that I remember being on the market and that was uh, the capacity was, was four slides. And so, mm. Uh, to prep four slides, have them scanned, um, pull those off, put another four on. The, the, the throughput's just very low. Um, and I would say in the, in the past, you know, five years or so, um, there are some higher capacity scanners that have, have come around um, that, that sort of allow for, for more scaling up. But I think in, in general, we see a lot of the, um, the discovery work sort of set up in that, that multiplex space where it's maybe smaller scale studies, um, proof of concept, some validation and, and trying to uh, find those, those relationship of, of, of what's important from that panel. Um, you know, is it, is it a specific type of immune cell? Is it a specific co-localization? You know, what, what's the sort of key piece we're looking for? And then translating that into uh, chromogenic staining for a more simplified assay that you can then scale up and, and scan I think Leica has a 450 slide capacity scanner at, at this point that actually allows you to run it around the clock because you can just kind of pull one stack off and put another stack of slides on as it's going so you don't have to stop anything. Um, so, so you can really up the throughput. And I think that ultimately then lends to the clinical space where you have labs where they have several of those types of scanners that you're just cranking those through that I, I don't think with, with fluorescence, um, you can quite have that throughput, you know, because not only um, are you worrying about the sort of the life, the lifespan of that fluorescent signal, but you're also um, you're scanning the slide multiple times. For so, if you have a an, an eight plex uh, panel, you're essentially scanning it eight eight times to get each right. channel, uh, and yep. so it really slows down the throughput, even on uh, a slide scanner that that holds, you know, could hold hundreds of slides. Um, you still got to scan it eight times to get the, the image for each channel. So, um, mm. you know, we, we've seen the capacity and the throughput increase in the fluorescent space, but I think ultimately um, this, the, the goal for, for true scale up ends up going back into the, the chromogenic space, it seems. So do you see that the, the fluorescence uh, is more applicable to uh, research environments only, or do you see diagnostic labs starting to use fluorescence as well? Uh, I would say predominantly, in my experience anyway, I've, I've seen it mostly in research, okay. um, but starting to see, I guess, more more curiosity and more uh, investigation into um, being able to use it in, in a clinical or diagnostic space, um, starting to, to kind of dabble in that area from what I've seen anyway. 
Yeah, and I guess like you said, the you know the limitation would be the time. I think that's maybe in, inhibiting some of those diagnostic labs, uh, where they're they're really trying to get that fast turnaround time, fast reporting, and so they potentially could see fluorescence as as being a slower process, and because of that, they wouldn't be as open to it, and it would be an initial uh, actual investment too to get the capital uh, to buy the hardware that that's needed for this too, and and the additional training that would be required. So uh, one of the things that I've been really uh, in favor of is continuing to provide educational opportunities within the NSH to help uh, the the technical staff to, to learn these techniques and to raise awareness of um, these type of um, instruments and processes where we could collect these type of fluorescent uh, readouts. And so they would at least be more um, aware of the the change, and they could maybe feed it up to their leadership team, and eventually bring bring this uh, kind of a continue the revolution, if you will, of this technology. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we've been primarily focused in uh, research up until probably about a year or so ago, um, okay. and so you know we we see pretty much everything that you see in the clinic or in a diagnostic space started in research. Um, like yeah. you, you don't just start out as a diagnostic That's tool, right? right? Yeah. And so um, it's 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 pretty interesting. It's pretty cool to see uh, to see that build. And so it's it's been good for us as well to kind of build um, evidence in the research space for the software and 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 for the assays and and to see that kind of follow through into the clinic. And now we're we're starting to head there um, as well with the software. And um, really the whole time, you know, being focused in in the research. Uh, like you said, it's you're sort of building um, a, really a pile of evidence that you can then take uh, to the folks on the, the diagnostic side, on the clinical side, and sort of show this is what we've been working on, this is what it does, this is where it's going, um, and it's not just theoretical at that point, right? There's actually a pile of, of practical uh, data that you have on hand, um, which is which is great. All right. Well, I do appreciate your your time uh, talking about this topic. Adam is really interesting, and and to see your insights as we kind of wrap up, uh, I'm interested to know what what you see is the the biggest struggles right now for for labs adopting this type of technology, uh, this AI approach. Yeah, I think right now it's it's been sort of in the I guess twofold, like in the, the hardware space mm -hmm. is one, okay, hardware. Yeah, getting uh, computers that are capable of the, the GPU um, processing power. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's been one. And, and that's, that's actually been challenging even for customers to get the hardware in. Um, even if you're purchasing it, you have budget for it. The, the supply chain right now is, is kind of, um, it's crimped a little bit. So it, it, the turnaround time, if you want to buy a graphics card, it might be five to six months until they can deliver it. Um, I think between the pandemic, uh, Bitcoin mining, things like that, they're, they're actually, they're pretty high demand um, yeah. and, the, and the supply is sort of tough. So that's, that's sort of one piece of it. And we're actually uh, looking into more and more networks where you can leverage traditional CPU processing. So you, you don't necessarily need that, uh, that higher um, scale computing in order okay. to, to leverage AI. So that's one of the areas that we're trying to build into um, and find some new networks for that. And then the, the other side, the other challenge, I think, has been um, customers 
providing the training data for the network. So again, our approach has been to kind of give uh, a shell of a network and then the customer provides their training data of what is a tumor and what's not a tumor. And kind of the reason we've taken that approach is that in, in AI or any machine learning, um, someone needs to teach the computer what, what the ground truth is, right? And so in, in, in our case, it's, it's histology images. Um, and so that data has to come from from somewhere. And so we we can't take um, we can't take GSK's customer data, build right. a network that segments tumor, and then sell it to another pharma company. Like that just that yeah, just won't yeah, fly. Yeah. And it's yeah. and it's been a, a bit of a, a, a matter of contention, I guess, in the space of well, where's this data coming from, and and who's supplying it, and then where's that being used? Um, and so we've sort of erred on the side of letting them build it. So what that requires is then that you have to supply um, lots and lots of training data that's coming mm -hmm. from the pathologist or coming from the labs and, and you're supplying that data. And so that's been a bit of, uh, I guess, a, uh, a hurdle for, for adoption is sort of not investing the time um, to supply. I mean, pathologists have better things to do than draw on a screen all day, <laughs> right. Right? right? But but it, it's, it's needed uh, along the way. And so um, supplying that training data. And so again, we're, we're starting to work and, and build some collaborations with labs um, to provide okay. some more pre-built um, algorithms, so sort of application specific. So um, look at some different tumor types um, to have, have sort of a pre-built uh, network that can identify uh, colorectal cancer or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And so we've been working with some, some labs and, and building some uh, agreements in place where we'd be able to use their expertise, use their training knowledge uh, they're compensated for it and, and it's going to become a, a commercial product. So that's sort of one of the areas um, where we're trying to lower that barrier of adoption of, of needing to provide the training data yourself. I wonder if there's an opportunity within uh, university hospitals like teaching hospitals where they may be re um, uh, running on, on grants and things like that. So if they could get maybe a grant to, to work on this type of a project or I wonder through the NIH if there's something that that could be done there uh, to build up. Yeah, that's uh, I, I didn't I didn't feed you that question. I promise. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> okay. that's I mean that's exactly where, where we're looking uh, and working oh, okay. with collaborators yeah. and, and trying to um, yeah. you know the, the academic labs you, you you sort of have much more willing to to work with vendors and and supply sort of group source uh, data right. um, and and to be able to to leverage that for sort of for access to product on, on their end. So it, it works out as a really nice synergistic relationship where uh, we're able to build um, those products. That's great. Well, I'm glad I asked the question. So <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that you were prepared to answer that. So that's great. So if somebody wants to learn more about uh, AI or image analysis or validation, that type of stuff, where, where do you recommend that they go to find out more information? Um, I mean, on our, our website, uh, indicalab.com, we have a lot of, we have a, a learning portal there for, for customers uh, to go in. We have sort of some AI webinars um, that are there, um, some nice introductions to um, the material. Um, mm -hmm. There's the uh, AI presentation that I gave at the NSH conference this year. Um, I'm assuming there's a recording of that available yeah. somewhere. Um, and then 
even on YouTube, uh, there's some some nice uh, channels there. I think it's three blue, three brown, one blue. I think is the um, the one guy. He's a Stanford mathematician um, mm -hmm. who's he's got just some phenomenal uh, videos on AI and really breaking it down and simplifying it that um, even I can understand. I think a lot of times when you get into the math of it my eyes kind of glaze over and <laughs> I, I, it's it's over my head it's not you yeah. know and so he, he really breaks it down into a more practical uh, sort of digestible um way of, of explaining things so uh, i think some really good good resources like that and um again i think going back to that uh, original differentiation that i made between ai for image analysis versus sort of the data processing side of things yeah making sure you're like you're, you're looking at the the right side of that uh, when okay. you're looking and, and not getting sort of bogged down into the, the data <clears throat> um and yeah there's, there's a lot of those uh those resources out there that are available and maybe in the block we could list uh, a number of of educational programs that we have webinars or um present other presentations that would allow people to uh, go more in depth into this topic all right. Any any uh, final comments uh, before we close? No, just uh, just thanks for for the invite. Um, it, was, it was great to to catch up and, and chat a little bit. And uh, but yeah, that's uh, I think that covers it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have a tip, trick, or piece of knowledge you'd like to share, let us know. We would love to feature you on a future episode of Histo Help. Have a great day. Yahtzee.